The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world, and we look at the world through our prism of Catholic values and Catholic wisdom and Catholic tradition. Um, Sometimes it's referred to in this particular area as Catholic social teaching. You know, we're concerned about the dignity of the human person. We're concerned about workers and decent work, solidarity across countries. And boy, that's something that is so terribly important these days. And uh, we're going to be speaking about that very, very shortly, about the very, very sad situation in, um, in Haiti. So those are the things that we kind of look at and to see what's going on in the world and how do we reflect on them? How do we understand them? in light of our Catholic values and our Catholic vision. Boy, Tom, these days there is so much that is going on in the world, and we'll talk uh, about it a little bit later on in the show. Um, You know, whether it be as we're going to speak about the situation in Haiti or the situation with regard to, um, excuse me, with regard to Afghanistan, just so many things that are kind of going on in the world. The children and the families who are at the southern border of the United States, a lot of things that are going on. The COVID virus, you know, I heard on, I heard earlier today, and, you know, I don't know the facts, but I'm sure there's a great deal of accuracy in this. There are many countries in the world that haven't received any vaccines or very, very few vaccines. So that's a very, very difficult and difficult and challenging situation. So um, why don't we go to our first guest? Our first guest is Beth Carroll, who is head of programs in Haiti for Catholic Relief Services. Beth Carroll, thank you so much for joining us on Just Love today. Good morning. Or afternoon. I'm sorry, I'm not sure of your time zone. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Uh, so thank you. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. And Beth, is my understanding that you are actually in Haiti at the moment? That's right. I'm in the city of Lakai in the southern peninsula right now. Oh, uh, well, thank you very much for the work that you you are doing there and Catholic Relief Services is is doing there. Um, so Beth, can you kind of give us uh, a sense of what is the situation on the ground there? You know, we're about we're a couple of weeks, I think, after the earthquake. So give us a, a sense what's what's happening in Haiti today. So um, it's about 10 days. The earthquake was was last Saturday, uh, and it was a very strong earthquake and also very shallow. So the it was felt much more powerfully uh, than some earthquakes that we've had in the past. Uh, and in fact, even though the epicenter was here in the southern peninsula, it was felt all the way in Port-au-Prince quite strongly up in the northern parts of the country. Um, but the effects here in the south have been very devastating. And I know that there's a lot of images on the news that show um, the collapsed buildings and the damage, the structural damage. 
Um, but I think also you know, the, the impacts, for example, to the water systems have been very extensive. A lot of uh, the water systems are older um, and did not survive the shaking. Um, and even those that did the water, you know, because of the disruption, uh, the water is, is dirty and not usable, um, definitely not consumable, but not even usable for, you know, washing food or, or yourself. Uh, so there's been a lot of, um, you know, un, not very visible strains. And many of the families are still really reeling from the, the psychological trauma of, of an earthquake and that sort of sudden devastation. Um, and we continue to have aftershocks. We had one this morning uh, that was, you know, it was a four point something. So it was definitely things were moving. Uh, and, and you can see just how affected families have been because people are running outside they're running to find their loved ones. Uh, you know, there's, it's, it's very, uh, even that is very disturbing. So there are a lot of um, impacts that continue to be felt and, and continue to really uh, to devastate the communities. So Beth, you have been um, working in Haiti for the past number of years. So you, you have a little bit of a, of a history there. Uh, so has, was there recovery from that earlier earthquake, the real big one that I think hit a different part of the island? What was the situation kind of before this earthquake hit? Um, yeah, I have been in Haiti for a little while now. Um, and, you know, the, the earthquake in 2010, you know, was a different, it was a different uh, environment. It was in Port-au-Prince. It, most of the damage was in these very heavily populated, dense urban areas. Beth, I think we may have lost you or you may, your connection may have muted. I think you're back with us now. Sorry about that. No um, problem. I'm, <laughs> I'm actually, our, our office was damaged in the earthquake. So we're working outside uh, under a, a little temporary shelter with some tarps. So I'm sitting in a car. So that you don't have to hear all of my coworkers typing okay. and conversating. <laughs> but you know, but, but Beth, let me let me let me ask you to do this because I think um, what sometimes we don't have a sense of, particularly in the United States, about how I'll use the word makeshift situations are and how <laughs> people have to adapt. So describe where you're doing this call from today. And yeah, no, uh, that is something, uh, there's, a, there's a couple different Haitian proverbs. They are very adaptable and can make anything work, uh, which is great. It's a great experience for me. So today um, we have in, in Le Kai, CRS has been in Le Kai since 1954. So we have this very long history uh, and we've had an office here. Uh, it's actually on church grounds that, you know, is a, a two-story office building along with a very large warehouse. Uh, and it was all damaged. And the structural engineers have said we shouldn't be um, spending time inside those buildings. So the in the parking lot out front, they've set up two tents, two large tents for storage for, the, for our relief items that we've received. Um, and then they built a little wooden structure uh, and I, I structure is a very strong word. They've put up some posts that they've used to tie on um, some tarps because it, you know, it does continue to rain on and off uh, that we've set up. And we have some extension cords run from inside the building. Um, the, the IT specialist set up a router so that the Wi-Fi would reach us in the parking lot. Um, and everybody's just working around folding tables. 
and you know, and the trucks are coming in and out, and the teams are going out to the field with, to distribute. Um, and it's 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 quite it's organized, but it's a little bit chaotic. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's. Um... But Beth, thank you so much for kind of painting that picture. Mm -hmm. Beth Carroll is the head of programs for Haiti with Catholic Relief Services. She is on the ground as she's speaking to us in the midst of the relief efforts that are going on there. You know, Beth, let me share with you um, one of the priests who uh, helps out in the parish where I am in New York has spent seven years in Haiti, and he actually is actually down there at the moment. And he was describing, you know, some of the difficulty in getting from maybe the more urban areas like Port-au-Prince to the areas where the relief efforts are needed. Is, is, is that part of the chaos that is uh, going on at the moment? Yeah, it, you know, there it. Unfortunately, you know, the earthquake happened in an already difficult context. Um, there has been some, you know, ongoing insecurity and, and political turmoil in Haiti. Uh, and some of that has meant the road, the main highway from Port-au-Prince that leads out to the southern peninsula has been very insecure uh, for several months now. And it's very difficult for passengers to get through um, it's very difficult to find transporters who are willing to take the risk to send their trucks through. Um, so when we purchase or receive materials in Port-au-Prince, uh, we have to find alternative methods. Uh, the, the UN has started to set up a barge service so it can come by boat. Uh, there's the possibility of small planes, but the airports, there's two airports here in the south, and neither one of them are, are rated for heavy heavy aircraft. Uh, I'm, I don't know the right words. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's right. You know, yeah, that's that's yeah, certainly so, descriptive. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a very significant challenge. Um, and something that it, it's, it's difficult for the team to plan. Um, and it's also expensive because of to get these alternative transportation options. So Beth, just to give people a sense, um, and I is how how far is it from uh, Port-au-Prince to kind of where you are? So I I should know this exactly. It's approximately two hundred kilometers. Okay. Uh, yeah, and when the roads are open and on a good day, it's about a four-hour drive because the roads are okay, but not you know there, there's not a right. highway, so it takes right. us a bit of time. Um, but we had some cars actually come through this morning. Uh, because we don't, we did not have enough, you know, vehicles for us to move our staff around. So, uh, two of our drivers they left Port-au-Prince very early this morning, uh, and it took them six hours uh, okay. to get here. Yeah, I mean, I think you know. Let me set a little context for uh, for our listeners to understand the situation that is is there, and because um, I, I'll speak for myself. I mean, I can't imagine that type of situation. We have experienced in the New York metropolitan area a number of disasters. Um, probably the one that is closest is Super Song Standy because it was um, a natural disaster, different than our earthquake, but with tremendous amount of damage. But, um, you know, you could get there. The roads were open. Um, 
you know, the, the issue was kind of organizing and, and doing it, but, you know, there was no situation, you know, like what is being described uh, here. Beth, speak to us about uh, power and electricity. Is that operative or not? Um, so, no. Unfortunately, normally the power network in, uh, in Haiti is not extremely reliable. Uh, and in this situation, there has been some damage to the, to the existing uh, national power system. Many people, because of that, have their own small generators. Um, in, for example, in our office, we have a generator with an inverter and batteries. Um, but people are conserving power uh, because of those difficulties with the road that you were speaking of. Um, there have also been gas shortages in the southern peninsula, um, difficulty for the gas trucks to the tanker trucks to get here. Um, so those with generators are also having to conserve gas and plan out their their usage. So every, everybody is trying to be very um, uh, conservative with their use of power right now. So have, on, a, on a very human level, with all of kind of the destruction, and as you said, at the beginning, we've seen uh, the pictures that are there. I assume that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of families whose houses themselves were knocked down by the hurricane. They're no longer habitable. Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, I th- the the number of homes that have been destroyed or are uninhabitable is is in the fifty thousand range. Wow. Uh, yeah, and it's it's the number of families affected is and the number of people affected uh, is is pretty overwhelming. Uh, and I, I think uh, again, the number of houses that have been damaged, uh, more than two thousand people have lost their lives. Uh, Multiples of that have been injured, and then the, the, you know, this this the psychosocial impacts, and just that, you know, there's now huge numbers of people in Haiti who are dealing with you know post traumatic stress, uh, and uh, have very little resources to to find support for that. So with so fifty thousand homes have been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Th- that must mean you know, probably a couple of hundred thousand of individuals. Um, where are they physically at the moment? So a, a lot of people, they're outside. That's the short answer, unfortunately. Um, they're outside. They're trying to find shelter, make some, put up something to protect themselves. Uh, the lucky ones have family or friends who can, who have a home that's not damaged. Um so, yeah, they're 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 struggling and they are they're outside um, and they're trying to find ways to protect their families. So is one of the ways that um, Catholic Relief Services is is helping is kind of providing some of that outdoor shelter? Are you involved in 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 helping that to be as humane as possible, even though it is an awful situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I would just like to take a second to really uh, laud the team, the Catholic Relief Services team, and also the other organizations that are responding. Um, one thing that's really touching to me is 
a lot of the people who come to our office, you know, they come, they're coming here to our, to our out, outdoor space at seven in the morning to get into vehicles loaded, you know, loaded with materials to distribute. They're sleeping outside and they sleep outside in the, you know, in front of their damaged home. And then they're coming here early in the morning to drive to, uh, you know, more rural areas, areas that haven't received help to distribute. They're distributing tarps and rope um, to help put up the tarps or distributing hygiene kits for families that have lost, you know, their, their possessions, um, mattresses, baby kits, uh, all these essential materials. Uh, and they, they're, they, they participate in these distributions. They come home, they come back to the office. It's often dark by the time they get back. And then they go home to their, their destroyed houses and they sleep outside and they come back the next day. It's, uh, it's really a, a, an effort of, of love. Well, you know, it's, it's, Beth, what you describe is um, something that kind of I experienced a little bit uh, in some of the work that we did uh, with Caritas in Puerto Rico, uh, that the people who were trying to help people deal with the aftermath of, of Maria were oftentimes people who themselves, you know, were driven out of their homes and they were living in makeshift ways. But yet every day they kind of did the work of trying to provide the help and the services that would need to their to their neighbors. And it seems to me what you're describing in this situation now in Haiti is is kind of similar to, at least in part, what I experienced a few years ago with Maria in Puerto Rico. Yeah, it's wonderful to see people rallying to help their neighbors and, and their uh, countrymen. You know, you did speak a little bit and um, about the, the some of the issues, the political issues, the unrest um, there. Now, without getting overly partisan and political, is that kind of impacting in a way that makes getting the help more difficult if, it, if there were not some of that trouble and turmoil? Um, of course. If there wasn't the trouble and turmoil and the environment was, um, for lack of a better word, easier, I think that would, of course, facilitate our work. Um, but the government agency that's responsible for disaster management, it's, it's the Department of Civil Protection, um, has largely not been affected and has been able to really manage their response um, kind of outside of that bubble. Um, right. The team that... the the people that we're working with uh, from the government in that agency, many of them I've been working with for 10 years. Um, they've, they've been learning and receiving um, training and reinforcement since, uh, you know, obviously since the 2010 earthquake. And I really can see how they're using that capacity to manage this response and to try to, you know, adapt to lessons that they've learned. Uh, of course, this area was hit by Hurricane Matthew in 2016. So they also have some experience from that disaster. So, you know, Beth, what you just mentioned, and I, I do want to mention this for our listeners, is something that, you know, I've oftentimes experienced, um, you know, in, in many places, um, the political environment can be pretty divisive and pretty chaotic and pretty disheartening. And, you know, whether it be the situation in Haiti or some of the really ugly political stuff 
in the United States. What I've often found is that many, many, many of the people who are working in government agencies are just so dedicated. And day in and day out, they are doing the work of helping people in whatever it is. It could be processing papers. It could be other things. Or as you mentioned, what the Department of Civil Protection now needs to do to make sure that basic necessities that, you know, sometimes that dedication, that work, that steady stuff is what makes so much positive happen and independent of the kind of the political divides, the the turmoil that is so often part of the political thing. So I do think when a lot of people in government get a lot of bad name, I think we do have to recognize the tremendously dedicated civil servants who really do so much good for, for their neighbors. 100% agree. Absolutely. So Beth, let me, let me ask, so as you, you on the ground there, what are the prospects for the future? What's the immediate stuff that Catholic Relief Service is doing? What's it looking to do three months from now? Um, and again, uh, one of the things that I think really should be raised up about Catholic Relief Services, even though it does this type of emergency assistance, it's always looking for the development of the people in the countries where it's working, that there's the ability for those individuals to kind of have a better future, that there be progress and not be kind of a perpetual situation where people need um, need assistance, but that they can provide for themselves. So in this situation, Haiti, what's Catholic Relief Services plans, you know, for the next month or two and then further on? What are you looking at? Well, you just described our strategy, so thank you. Uh, <laughs> making this very easy for me. Uh, <laughs> but the, you be a little concrete. <laughs> oh, I can be more concrete, absolutely. Great. So what um, what we're looking at now is, you know, look, using the the needs assessments. Uh, our initial our initial activities, of course, we're uh, working with the government to, to to help them collect and analyze the data on what are the needs and. As I mentioned, you know, this huge impact to loss of shelter, uh, damage to water, damage to infrastructure. And so we're putting in place our strategy. You know, we have our emergency response to help um, those families that were affected, you know, respond to these to really life saving needs, making sure that they have some sort of protection, food, water, access to basic hygiene supplies. Um, But right from the beginning, trying to make sure that that's done in a way that the families don't have to put at risk their livelihoods, that they aren't, um, for example, selling their goats so that they can buy food, meaning that in, you know, a little in a season, they won't have any goats and then, you know, they'll be losing their, their, their incomes or that they're not harvesting early to sell that harvest to, you know, to be able to get um, some materials to fix their house and losing their crop and losing their seeds for the next planting season. Um, We're looking at making sure schools are accessible and children can get back to school. Uh, You know, summer is, summer is ending. Schools are supposed to be reopening. Um, If the children can't go back to school, they can't miss another school year after all of the disruptions with COVID and with the security situation. 
uh, we want to make sure that even our initial responses are looking at these long-term questions, uh, shelter, wash, education, livelihoods, uh, and health. Hey, Beth, let me ask you a question. This is kind of my ignorance, mm-hmm. but I bet you, I bet you, you could enlighten a few, a few of our listeners. In addition to me, what does a family do with a goat? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, sorry, I apologize. I'm so used to thinking of goats. Um, in Haiti, a goat is, especially in the rural communities, a goat is a bank account. So, I make a little bit of money. I, you know, I have a harvest. I don't put it in the bank. I buy a goat. And then that goat breeds and has kids and I can sell those. And I can, you know, and a lot of times families here are very strategic. They'll sell their goat, their, their goats right before it's time to go back to school so that they have money, for example, to, you know, to pay their, buy the books and pay for the uniform and send their children back to school or they save their goats until it's planting season and then they sell their goats so they can buy seeds or help, you know, get help to plant their seeds. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very visible um, interest being earned every time their goat has kids and those kids grow up and have kids. So, so, yeah. so let, let me take you one step further. Okay. I get it. That's, that's wonderful. But the people buying the goats, what do they do with the goats? Oh, we eat them. They're delicious. Really? Yeah. Ah, yes. okay. I, that's how I know. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm betraying my ignorance about, um, about goats, but, but let me tell you this though. We partnered Catholic charities in New York partnered mm-hmm. uh, for a few years with the church of the Latter-day Saints. They mm-hmm. had this giving kind of machine, which it was like a vending machine, but in other words, you paid a certain amount of money and you kind of purchased something that could be used in another part of the world. So sometimes it might've been a school book. Maybe it was sweaters. Maybe it was sneakers. But one of the things you could purchase was a goat that could, you know, be that a family in another part of the world could then have a goat as, as their own. So I didn't know what they did with them, but I knew they were valuable because I think they cost like two hundred dollars to buy a goat for a for a family in another country. Very valuable. You'd be a hero if you bought a family a goat in Haiti. How much do they cost? Uh, it depends on the type of goat, and that like, you can buy a baby goat, and it's cheaper because you invest in your feeding. Right. But if you wanted to buy a bigger goat, uh, you know, if you're going to buy a female, it's a different price than a male. Ah. Uh, there's a whole catalog of prices. There's, and you know, of course. I'm not an agronomist. There's different breeds that are more robust um, that will produce bigger goats that have more meat and then are more valuable for selling. So, well, but Beth, I got to tell you, you know, if if you you know ever if you ever leave Catholic Relief Services, you got a good foundation. I think you could kind of get into the goat business um, in the future with just maybe a little more study. You know, grilled goat is one of my favorite Haitian dishes, so I'm on ah, board with that. What is it? What was the name of it? They grill it. Uh, ah. Yeah, it's delicious. Lovely ah. spices. Mm-hmm. Um, well, hey, Beth Carroll, I want to say thank you for the work that you're doing and for the work that Catholic Relief Services is doing. And let me uh, let me set up this question 
for you because I, I I know the answer to this. Um, if people wanted to help the relief efforts, um, should they collect things and send things, or should they send money? We we would always ask for money. Um, there are markets here. There are businesses here. We want to invest in those businesses. Um, please send money and invest in Haitian Right. Yeah. Thank thank you you. for that question. Thank thank you for saying it, because whenever there is a disaster, there is usually, fortunately, um, a lot of goodwill and a lot of impulse to give. And people sometimes want to be very tangible. So they want to collect, whether it be cans of food or they want to collect clothes. And, you know, what I think what we have to say to them, boy, your generosity we welcome it. But if we really want to help the people, it's best to provide the donations and the cash because, first of all, as you said, Beth, it can be spent locally. And so it helps some of the economy to either stabilize or rebound. Or secondly, it's flexible because, you know, in a disaster, you need something today, but you may need something different three weeks from now. And Cash is, is very, very flexible in doing that. So, Beth, thanks for highlighting that. Thank you. Thank Beth Carroll, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's also more dignified. It's, uh, you know, the, there's something very uh, much, there's something empowering about having cash that you can spend on what you need rather than having somebody come and say, this is what you need uh, and yep. giving you a bag. So, yeah, yep. definitely. So, Beth Carroll, the head of programs in Haiti for Catholic Relief Services, who's speaking to us in the middle of the area that was devastated, actually from her car. And cars are having a hard time getting around. The roads are not good. So it is really a situation that if you're not in that country, you have a hard time imagining how difficult it is. So a word of gratitude to Beth the Catholic Relief Services people and others who are providing the immediate relief in the aftermath of this disaster. Beth Carroll, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Great. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Tom, I think we'll take a break and we'll be back in just a minute on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We're looking at what's going on in the world through the perspective of Catholic social values, wisdom, teaching. And we just kind of focused a lot on that value of, of actually a few of them. But one of them, solidarity, that when there is trouble, disasters, need in various parts of the world, we need to be present. And there is no better organization that is representative of Catholic values and Catholic presence than Catholic relief services. Tom, do you actually know in how many different countries Catholic relief services is active? Last time I checked my senior was 89 countries. Yeah. And, and so Catholic relief services is kind of, I don't mean to be bureaucratic, but it's kind of the official helping organization of the Catholic church in the United States. It mm-hmm. is, it goes there to kind of share the blessings primarily in terms of resources of the United States with countries who may not have as many resources. And, you know, one of the things that you heard Beth say in a few different ways, which is absolutely kind of critical, is that the way that Catholic Relief Services works is a way which is not condescending, but a way that seeks to respect the people who are being helped and to do it in a way that empowers and moves them forward so their future can be, can be better. And they do it in many ways by actually employing a lot of individuals who are in those countries to do the work there for two reasons. One, they know the needs better. They know how to implement programs appropriately. And it does help the local economy by providing jobs for people who are there. You know, one of the things which I'll talk about a little bit later on in the um, in our show, because it's a tr- tremendously uh, need for us to kind of think about it. Catholic Relief Services is also in Afghanistan and they had I don't know what the count is at the moment, but in the midst of all of the uh, rampant you know, violence and the kind of takeover of the country by the Taliban, all of the situation that we saw in the media about uh, the chaos at the airport in Kabul. Um, Catholic Relief Services still had a number, had, had, you know, I think uh, close to a dozen, maybe a little bit less, staff who were in country, in addition to the individual Afghanis who were working with them. So even in that place where we might say, well, what's Catholic Relief Services doing in a country that is 99% Muslim? Well, what they were doing is kind of bringing the need, the love to do what was, to do what needed to be done. So 
anyway, so so let's move on and let's go to another topic, which is very, very kind of critical to our Catholic view of the world. The topic is the family. But we're going to talk about the family, not so much in terms today of the mom, the dad, the kids, but we're going to talk about the generation before. We're going to talk about grandparents. And I am delighted that our guest for this segment of Just Love is Bruce Gordon. And Bruce Gordon, um, you know, at the moment is um, is with the Mentor Matrix Services. Um, and he's done a variety of different campaigns, a different uh, focusing on, on family issues. Bruce Gordon, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. Thank you. It's great to join you. Great to be here with you great. coming across the country. Great. Or across the border even, right? Even, even that, which we're not allowed to do yet. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but Bruce, give our listeners a little bit of your, your background. How'd you get to do what you're doing now? And then we'll get into the topics of grandparents. Okay. All right. Well, my, my world uh, currently is that I'm, uh, I'm on the staff of a uh, uh, of a church here, a pastor part-time alongside of a younger staff and the 55 plus as they transition in life. And we, at our church, we probably have about four or 500 at the 55 plus, plus everybody else here up here in Vancouver, BC. And that, but I, I do, I do a couple things. One, I, I do that, but I also have a consulting practice that I've had for probably 30 years and using it with leaders, leaders in the area of helping them, especially in times of change and transition. So it's, it's coaching, it's team development, it's consulting, it's alongside, but really as a pastor, I can't say it any other way uh, to, to them. And uh, I've done lots of things, like I'm sure the two of you have as well uh, in my life. But uh, in the past, I have, been, I have been the Canadian president of Focus on the Family in Canada. And uh, I've owned some businesses and all that, you know, all that that brings. Uh, academically, I, I, I am an accountant. Not not a typical one by any means. I have an MBA, have an uh, honorary doct- doctorate in organizational management. So, so that's kind of my journey, and I love to be doing what I'm doing. And I wrote recently for for Focus and Tyndale. As long as I have breath, and that's my motto. As long as I have breath, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Great. Well, Bruce, thank you for all the things you've done, all the ways you've helped in a very, very positive way. So, you know, when, I mean, traditionally, if we go back, um, you know, decades upon decades, you know, we had the traditional family. You had mom, dad, the kids. Um, Mm -hmm. But the world's changed. And, you know, sadly, um, you know, in far too many places, there are far too many divorces. Um, And the families kind of take on a little bit of a, different shape and different cultures uh, have a different kind of understanding of families and age and things like that. So tell us a little bit about your work in kind of thinking more and talking more about the importance of grandparents. Well, it's, it's close to my heart. We have five grandchildren. The oldest is 16. I have none, Bruce. Okay. <laughs> it's an occupational kind of restriction. Well, well, there's, there's a few folks that I talk to that have have quite a few. They may they they may loan you a couple. Okay. Of them. <laughs> so you know what I say. One of the one of the real uh, problems with celibacy in the Catholic 
clergy, especially as we get get older, is um, we don't have we don't have twelve year old grandchildren who can help us to do the IT stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and that is so important, <laughs> and we're lost without them. Right. <laughs> and that. so so I you know obviously the family has been very important to me uh, all through our life. I, you know, I'm married to Denise. We just celebrated our 50th anniversary and uh, we have three sons uh, that um, are all on their own journey and we're alongside of them. But the point of it for me is that I have watched, and especially over this COVID time, this pandemic time in this 18 months, uh, I, I've been watching how the family has been transitioning through this and they've taken, they're taking a hit. They're taking a beating. And that, and and I recognize that the way I was raised, or the way that you were raised, is very different than our than our kids, the millennials and the Gen X wires today. And and my mission, as I've been doing it at the church, but I also do it in consulting, is to connect the dots. Bruce, before you before you do that, because I think you said something very important, and let's kind of um, provide a little bit of a framework for our for our listeners. Mm -hmm. You said there's a difference. Describe some of those differences before you get into what we do about it. What are okay. those differences? It's um, now I, by no means do I have a corner in the market on this. Right. Uh, but, you know, I was raised in a in the country, grew up in a farm in northern Ontario and uh, that north of Toronto. And um, and and I lived I was raised more in a black and white world. I knew, in essence, what what my parents would say is this is right and this is wrong, and 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 I could go to our little country church uh, uh, that we were involved in, and I knew that I was sitting here, and I look across the at the pew at my friends, my good friends, and they were basically we we basically were all on the same page. That is that's not the case anymore, and 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 I think we are doing. I, I spoke on Sunday. And I actually, I actually apologized to our young people, our young adults, because I said, I believe that you view us who have been raised more black and white, that we're too dogmatic, that we're too legalistic. We're not open to change. We're not open to different viewpoints. And I want to apologize to you and ask your forgiveness, because if you're looking to us for the answer, we don't have it. We're working through this. And so I think the change has been that that today our young people are it, it's it's more gray, and 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 they're and they're just not sure what is right or what is wrong, and yet they look to us, and sometimes they get some answers, and sometimes they don't. Okay. So given that, um, now speak about the role of grandparents. Yeah. Well, I uh, our youngest grand uh, grandson is for five months old. So he arrived, he, he arrived in COVID and, um, and that, and so, and we go up to, up to um, uh, 16 years, I was saying, I, I believe that we have such a unique role with our grandkids. And I, and, and I'm not saying that, that they all have to be around the corner and live in the same street. You know, we've, we've got, we've got, um, uh, three of them out here in Vancouver. We have two of them back in Ontario, and that. And so I believe that the role is is to be there. We're, we're to be there as mentors uh, at times that they can they can ask us questions. I I I also believe strongly that they need unconditional love. That they need to know that um, 
they're, we're a safe place and they can just bounce thoughts and ideas off of us. And that means we need to take the time and, and we're, you know, we're running here, there and three ways against the middle. We need to make sure that we're giving our time uh, for, for our grandchildren. And I also need, uh, I said that, that um, they need someone to stand with them and beside them and that and especially during this time coming through the pandemic with the mental health issue going on uh, and that that um uh, you know our our kids have taken a beating and and I, I find it just thrills me when i get a when i get a phone call or a text mostly a text <laughs> mostly a text uh from from them and just say can you give me a give me your perspective on this or can you give me some what do you think papa they call me papa what do you think papa I love it. And I can be able to come back to them and give them some thoughts. Say a little bit of a word about, um, I mean, some of those things you talk about, you know, we would say parents should be doing at least some of that. Also, talk a little bit about maybe the distinction or the different lanes for parents and grandparents. Okay. Boy, that's a, that is just a key, key piece that you're saying. Because, uh, and I, I would use my own experience. Um, we have three sons and our middle son who now has his, his PhD and he teaches and he's always been right. He still is, he says. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and so he was a strong-willed child by that, by whatever. And that we, Denise and I found that, that they had a very special relationship with, uh, with both sets of, of uh, our parents, more so with Denise's parents, parent, and her mom is Italian. And so that just, you know, that, that's just the world that she lives in. And they, they drew them in. And there were times that we would keep uh, our parents informed without breaking confidence that they were, you know, they're working through this issue. They probably will talk to you, but we're just tipping you off. And I can't say how that, that, that was a huge piece. The other part was youth, a youth leader. And, and, and um, you know, we were going to a church in Toronto and uh, their youth leader was a former Toronto Maple Leaf. He'd worked, he played for the Leafs. And, and, uh, and so I would, I, every so often I would uh, put a phone call through to Rocky and I would say, Rocky, this is what's happening with our kids. I know they're close to you. I'm just tipping you off. And, and so there's times that they, we can communicate as grandparents to them in a way that the parents cannot. You know, that is a really, really, I think, very wonderful uh, insight. And uh, you, you've been so generous with your, your time and your insights. Uh, I just want to thank you for taking a few moments to be with us on Just Love and to provide those very good and those very uplifting thoughts. Uh, So thanks for joining us on Just Love, Bruce. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, blessings in all that you do. And they they can get a copy of my book if they want. I'm not here to market books, but if they want a copy. So so Bruce, end up. What's the name of your book and where can they get it? They can get it through, uh, they can get it through Amazon. The name of the book is As Long As I Have Breath. And it's published by Focus on the Family out of Colorado and, and Tyndale out of Chicago. And so they can get it through the Focus on the Family site, but they can also get it on Amazon. Bruce Gordon, thank you for being with us on Just Love. Uh, Tom, Great. I think we will take a we will take a break, and we're back in just a moment. Just love, just okay. love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just, and it will be more compassionate. 
Join us when we come back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Tom Dobbins is with us and Yolanda, make sure that you can hear us. Um, I think we would be remiss if we didn't speak for a few minutes about the situation in Afghanistan. Again, in terms of solidarity, it certainly is something that is very, very much on our mind from our Catholic perspective. But if we go back a little bit further, it also fits into kind of our, you know, our traditional teaching about the just war And how, in my opinion, quite frankly, I think the way that that just war theory has been formulated just no longer serves us in the 21st century because we have so many non-state actors that we need to think about another way to do it. And so the issue in Afghanistan goes back to 
the terrorist attack on the United States in 2001? And what is the proper response to that? And the United States decided that the response was to go into Afghanistan, overthrow the Taliban, and try to build a new, more democratic government there. I don't want to kind of have a major discussion on whether that was just unjust, but that's just just the history. And we've been there for, you know, close to, to 20 years now. But the current situation is one that we do need to kind of speak about and focus about because um, there is such chaos, violence um, going on there. And it's a place where the United States has been embedded. And how do we deal with that situation how did we pull out? And I mean, you know, oftentimes when we talk about government doing policy, it's not only the policy directive direction that they set, but how do they implement it? Do they implement it in a way which provides for the needs of people who are there? And at the end of the day, the obvious answer is no matter what the intentions were, no matter what the policy was, the way that this has unfolded in the past month has just been a humanitarian, you know, disaster. And, you know, as when we talk about with government, um, you know, understanding, transparency, accountability are critical at the end of the day for getting better decisions to be made. And so I, I share with you that we were hoping today to have as a guest, and we, we did, um, have somebody who came out, an interpreter, who worked with the United States, who was going to speak to us about that experience. And, you know, sadly, uh, you know, in consultation with uh, some of the people, I believe, in the government, um, was advised not to do that. And so we respect um, that decision. Maybe we'll do something in the future. But what, what I am a little concerned about is this is a time for our government to be as accountable, as transparent, for as much information so that as a country, kind of we can understand what's going on there and also raise our voice for the proper policy. So I'm, a, I'm more than a little disappointed that our government thought it's not a good idea to hear from people who can enlighten us on what the situation is. You know, I also speak, I, I understand some of the issues. You know, the two congressmen went to Afghanistan to kind of on the ground learn what was going on. You know, from my aspect, if I know that received a little bit of, of controversy, you know, did they go with authorization or not? But their desire to learn what they were, what was going on there. And I believe, I'm not certain about this, but both of those, I think, may have been veterans who were actually in Afghanistan. So, you know, they have an ability to assess things in a way that those of us who've never been there have. So it is um, very, you know, it's a situation we're going to keep coming back to primarily as a humanitarian crisis, but obviously the humanitarian crisis has been a result of a number of political decisions, military decisions, terrorist decisions, some very, very difficult, challenging, and very problematic situations have arisen. So we keep 
Afghanistan and its people in our prayers. We keep Haiti and its people in our prayers and our solidarity causes us to be, be concerned. Thank you for being with us on Just Love. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.